So this talk will be called uh, Question and Response. And I want to start with where we find ourselves uh, at this moment. And since I don't know how you find yourselves, I'm afraid I will have to talk about myself. And what I'm experiencing is that thing I experience each time I sit down on a cushion and pay attention to what is happening and find myself utterly incapable of putting it into words. There's something about the practice of meditation, be it son, zen, meditation, be it any exercise whereby we are asked just to pay attention to what is happening, is that we are inevitably confronted with what some philosophers call the sheer facticity of our experience. There is the, the inescapable fact of being this being that we are. And when we look inside, or we say to ourselves, I'm looking inside, whatever that might mean, we seem to hit up against something that is intimately present to us, but impossible to define. It might be that what strikes us in the first instance is a particular sensation in the body, in the chest, maybe an ache or a pain, and I suspect for each of us this is entirely individual and unique and yet as utterly ineffable as anybody else's. I was reminded a few days ago um, of a passage by William James, the philosopher, psychologist, who said, um, whenever I try to introspectively uh, ascertain uh, the idea of myself, what I find in the end is a funny feeling in the back of my throat. <laughs> and anyone who has spent time doing such introspection, let's say through meditation or contemplation or just a sort of curiosity about one's self-awareness um, can prob probably recognize what James is on about. And it's rather curious that in the end we pursue these uh, profound questions. What is the nature of the self? And if we're utterly honest with ourselves, um, what often appears is this uh, is some weird physical sensation, something completely banal in a way. I remember also some years ago in the 1990s, I spent a couple of days uh, in a place called Nagi Gomba. It's a nunnery up in uh, the hills above Nepal, 
sorry, above Kathmandu in Nepal. And um, I went there to study with a, a Dzogchen uh, teacher called Urgen Tulku. Um, he's no longer a, alive now, but his three sons are very well known in the field. They are uh, Tsoki uh, Chuginima, uh, Tsokji, and uh, the other one. What's he called? Um, his name, Mingyur Rinpoche. Um, Ugyen Tulku was their father. He was a, a layman, he wasn't a monk. And he was renowned as a great teacher of Dzogchen. And from him I received what were called the pointing out instructions, in which one is initiated, as it were, into the practice of Dzogchen. And this instruction effectively entails um, listening uh, to a, a very direct presentation from the teacher who points out to you the nature of your mind, uh, or even more than that, the nature of what they call rigpa, some sort of primordial, pristine awareness that uh, is even deeper than your mind. And, um, again, I'm not going to go through all the details of this, but basically I could not get round the problem that no matter how much he tried to point this out to me, what I actually um, was aware of was um, a physical sensation in the body somewhere. And, of course, when I told him this, he said, no, you haven't got it. It's da-da-da-da-da. Um, but however much I was told what Rigpa was, I could not go beyond a sense of a physical sensation somewhere in the body. Before I could think of mind or consciousness or awareness, I felt this funny, indefinable um, uh, sensation, a bit like William James's funny feeling in the back of the throat. And um, so to that extent, I was not a particularly good student. But it led me to suspect that actually, at some level, I was being indoctrinated into something um, rather than actually having being somehow having an aspect of my experience that heretofore I had not recognized uh, being shown to me. And I find that when doing the practice of uh, satipatthana, of mindfulness, of awareness, of, um, of Zen, all of which uh, seek to bring us into a greater understanding of our minds, uh, citta, our mind states in Satipatthana, in our son training in Korea. Uh, Kuzan Sunim was likewise uh, very keen on what he called Shin, which is the Chinese, Korean, Japanese word for citta. Uh, mind, if you wish, but really more something like psyche, or uh, body mind, or sorry, heart mind, as it's sometimes translated. And when Kuzan Sunim taught us the what is this practice, 
The this for him stood for this shin. But this shin was not our ordinary everyday consciousness or awareness. It failed to be, uh, to, to think of it like that was to miss the point. Shin, a bit like Rigpa, somehow was more than that, somehow lay behind the scenes, uh, hidden from view. And the purpose of this inquiry was to break through to it, to experience it uh, directly. And such would be, in uh, my teacher's understanding, the experience of some kensho, although that's the Japanese word, some breakthrough, some insight, some enlightenment. But I always found myself um, highly skeptical of this language, um, highly resistant to this idea of there being something more, something that is outside of our ken, outside of our, what we can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and know with our everyday mind. And in fact, there is a, somewhat of a, uh, a tension in the Son or Zen traditions between this um, emphasis on everydayness, this emphasis on the specificity of experience, and another discourse um, which talks of a rather mystical sense of some transcendent psyche, mind, awareness, consciousness, somewhat similar perhaps to what you find also in Advaita Vedanta, uh, the idea of some sort of divine, non-dual awareness. And as much as I've tried to figure out what this means, I'm still just as confused as I was on day one. Um, I'm not at all persuaded that that is a useful way to go about this practice. And by this practice, I don't mean this particular exercise we're doing on this retreat, but I mean this practice of trying to be fully human, this practice of trying to lead a life um, in which I'm honest with myself, a practice in which um, I'm, uh, I'm cautious about simply uh, taking on trust uh, claims about the nature of some transcendent awareness or something, uh, that I fail quite um, consistently to really have any uh, lived sense of um, in my life. So I think what often creeps into uh, Buddhism, into Zen, is... Uh, this notion that there is something more. There's something more than the experience that we're having right now. We need to open ourselves, inquire, penetrate, practice, and break through into something else. It's a very seductive idea. It's an idea that's probably um, characteristic of most traditions that would consider themselves uh, to be mystical in some sense, whether you speak of this in terms of God or the absolute or the divine or the unconditioned or any number of other synonyms, there's this 
underlying sense that what we're experiencing now is somehow not enough, is somehow inadequate, is somehow only a tiny bit of something far vaster. And these practices that are taught in these traditions uh, provide us with a, uh, a methodology, an avenue uh, by following which uh, we reach this something else. I'm reminded of a sutta, a discourse in the, um, in the Sangyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses of the Buddha, which is called the Sabha Sutta. Sabha means everything, or the all, it's sometimes translated. And uh, the Buddha, it's a very short text, and the Buddha starts by saying, uh, Monks, I will teach you everything. And what is everything? The eye and the sights, the ears and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and sensations, the mind and ideas. That is everything. But if someone should come along and say, no, there's more than that, there's a much greater everything, such a person would be making an empty boast. Why? Because that person is uh, speaking about something that is not within his sensorium or his domain. Now, this is the kind of um, passage uh, that I find, uh, I find terribly engaging. Um, again, it has resonances in different uh, uh, traditions, particularly some of the other Buddhist traditions I've studied and practiced in, where there's a kind of uh, uh, deep suspicion of the idea that this practice is to lead us to something outside of what we can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and know within our own moment-to-moment uh, -moment consciousness. And it's this, I feel, that um, in, in a deep way, uh, characterizes the early uh, Chan Son tradition. My sense is that um, the Son tradition started life in the 8th century in China uh, by um, a very explicit rejection of this rather grandiose mysticism of these notions of some ultimate truths that lie beyond our ordinary experience, and instead sought to recover um, the simplicity and the primacy of this experience we're having in this body, in these senses, in this flesh, right now. That's where we begin. And if we think of the, 
the legend of the Buddha himself. It is this, it is waking up to this fact that prompts him to embark on his quest. The fact of birth, the fact of sickness, the fact of aging, and the fact of death. And these are all experiences that are utterly um, of this body. It's not the mind that is born, it's the body. It's not the mind that gets sick, well, sometimes it does, but the body. The, the body-mind, if we want to think of it more like that, which is possibly more useful, that's what gets born, what gets sick, what ages, and that dies. And that's where we begin. That's where we come back again and again and again when our minds wander off into the past, into the future, into sometimes just rather sort of unstructured uh, threads of associated thought. We come back to the, to the dull, blunt immediacy that is intimate but somehow inarticulate that is our experience that we're having right now. So when I ask myself the question, what is this? By this, I don't mean what our teacher told us, that this refers to this sort of mystical chitta or shin or mind, but this meaning what you're experiencing in this moment right now. And um, I was puzzled about uh, this teaching of this great shin or mind. And so I went back to the Chinese text of, the, um, of, the, uh, of, of what's called the Platform Sutra, where the account of the story behind what is this is told. I'm going to talk about that tomorrow morning. Um, and when I got back to the Chinese, with help, I don't speak Chinese, but uh, someone was able to tell me what each character meant. And when the text talks of uh, this, it doesn't talk of this shin, this mind, this rigpa, this awareness. This It talks of, in, in Korean, e bulgon, this thing. This thing. What is this thing? And I like the word thing. Thing has a kind of gritty um, uh, sort of, well, we all know what thing means, but we don't know what it means. Heidegger actually wrote essays on what, was ist ein Ding? What is a thing? And um, it's actually a terribly difficult question. It's actually just as difficult to answer as the question, what is consciousness? What is the mind? What is awareness? Now, what, what, what is a thing? A thing. So to me, what is this, is what is this thing? This thing in all of its stripped bare vulnerability, um, ineffability, um, banality, what is that? 
this thing that was thrown into this world at birth, painfully, this thing that will get sick, that will get old, that will die. What is this thing? So stripping the mind as much as possible of any further elaborations you may have, whether they be Buddhist uh, doctrinal elaborations, whether they be elaborations we find also in Zen or in other religious or spiritual traditions, just try to put all of that stuff out of your mind. However, however um, drawn you are to those ideas. So I think these, these sorts of transcendent mystical ideas are, are profoundly seductive. There's something within us that yearns for something more than just this thing. Surely that can't be enough. After a number of years of um, training as a Tibetan Buddhist monk in India, not a number of years, I guess it would have been three or four years actually, um, I remember ha uh, having one of these strange experiences that somehow come upon you rather than things that you achieve by having done lots and lots of meditation or, or practice. And I remember I was walking through the woodlands above Dharamsala and I had in my hand a bucket of water that I'd just got from the nearby stand pipe. And uh, all of a sudden I found myself just stopped in my tracks and simply overwhelmed by the utter strangeness of what was happening. The incredibly, the incredible weirdness of just being there, of just standing in that forest with a bucket of water hanging from my right arm. And this was an experience that um, has probably led to pretty much everything else I've done in my practice and in my work and in my teaching. Because it struck me very strongly then, and this was long before I'd heard or knew anything about Zen or Song. But what seemed to me to be the most primary source of, um, of, of questioning or wonder um, why perhaps philosophy or religion have even come about at all is because if we uh, are open to it, uh, life itself in its, in its gritty simplicity, in its banality, is profoundly mysterious, uh, overwhelmingly mysterious. And yet, as creatures who have been designed by biology and evolution, essentially to survive, um, we're not, I think, uh, uh, prepared in some ways. We're not designed to experience things this way. 
I feel it's probably the consequence, or almost an accidental consequence, probably, of having evolved such large brains that have enabled us to have language and in doing so have enabled us to be able to, for example, become conscious of the fact that we will die. Other animals do not have this capacity. We have the capacity, therefore, uh, by virtue of our consciousness, which probably was evolved for reasons that had nothing to do with this. This is a kind of a byproduct. Um, is that we have the capacity to become questions for ourselves. And this practice of son, and I would argue actually the practice of the Dharma period, is the practice of coming to terms with this question that we are to pursue this question of, 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 of what we are. Uh, to allow that to be questionable, which I think all human beings at various moments in their lives uh, come up against. It might be through an experience of being in nature, it might be through art, it might be through falling in love, uh, it might be through philosophy. But there are moments when suddenly we are overwhelmed by the fact that we are here at all rather than not here. Again, this is a question that we find, I think it goes back to Leibniz, the German philosopher, but you also find it in, in, in Heidegger. The, the question, why is there anything at all rather than just nothing. And that question, too, functions for me as a koan, as a kungan. Why is there anything at all rather than just nothing? And that works for some people, may not work for everyone. But I remember when I first read it, um, it, uh, it sent a, 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 a tremor up my spine. And that is very close, actually, I think, to what is meant by cultivating a sensation of doubt, which is the way this term is usually phrased uh, in English translations of Zen texts. Cultivating the sensation of doubt. There's something physical about it. There's something that reverberates through one's body. We're not talking here of a purely mental or spiritual experience. We're talking of something that is somatic. And we have, for example, in uh, a text called The Gateless Gate, where the author says, you must question with the marrow of your bones and with the pores of your skin. Now, of course, that's not meant literally, but we probably know what the author, the, the writer means. It's a kind of questioning that's gone beyond just an intellectual curiosity or puzzlement and has become a vital, embodied um, uh, uh, perplexity 
in which we can no longer meaningfully distinguish between body and mind. The whole of us, every cell of our body, it feels, is um, uh, taken up uh, with this sense of perplexity. But this is still pretty abstract in many ways. What I like about certain elements within the early teachings of the uh, Son tradition is this repeated uh, uh, emphasis on the specific, the specific detail of ordinary life. And I can give you some, some examples, but I'm sure you know, you're familiar with these kinds of uh, Zen-like uh, sayings. Famous Kungan, why did Bodhidharma come from the West? And Chao Chu answers, the cypress tree in the courtyard. Another one, uh, what is the highest teaching of Buddhism? Three pounds of flax. Or one of my favorites, this is from Yunmen. Uh, who's also asked, what is the teaching that goes beyond everything the Buddhas and the patriarchs have ever said? And Yunmen replies, cake. <laughs> now, we've missed the point if we think that these are answers to, that, to those questions. They're not. They're not answers to those questions at all. They're ways of actually turning the student's attention away from those kinds of questions altogether and returning attention to what is right before your eyes, what is visibly, tangibly present in the moment you find yourself at that point. The cypress tree in the courtyard. I can only imagine that this teaching was given in a room outside of which there stood a cypress tree. Or it could have been an oak tree. It really doesn't matter. Any old tree. So rather than get drawn into this question about why um, Bodhidharma came from the West, in other words, this is another way of asking, you know, you know why, uh, why is the Buddha teaching what he teaches? Why are we being taught this? What is the purpose of this practice? Which again could extend into some very interesting reflections and discussions and so on. It would actually serve to take us away in increasingly um, uh, rarefied steps of abstraction so that we don't even see the cypress tree in the courtyard anymore. We've gone off into, into the land of metaphysics and uh, doctrine and theory. Terribly interesting. But we've lost sight of the tree. And the business of the three pounds of flax, I think the text actually says, oh, there are three pounds of flax here, aren't there? So one imagines that the... Um, the monks were probably doing some 
work in the fields or maybe in the monastery courtyard. They were sorting through the flax that they had harvested that day in the fields. And that's where the teacher turns the monk's attention away from these ideas about what's the greatest teaching of the Buddha back to what they're actually doing there and then. They're sorting out the flax. And I think of the story with uh, Yun Men. Uh, I can imagine that he's sitting at a, at a, at, on a chair perhaps like this, there might be a table, and as is often the case in uh, those monasteries, there would be maybe a cup of tea, some, uh, a plate of cakes, in this case probably pounded rice cakes of some kind. And rather than get drawn into the um, question that's being posed about the teaching that goes beyond the Buddhas and the patriarchs, Yun Men points to this piece of pounded rice, this cake. So I think this, um, these stories, of which there are many, are all basically doing the same thing. They are attempts to cut through a particular uh, habit of the human mind as soon as the human mind gets drawn into questions of truth and meaning and philosophy and religion. And in a way, rather bluntly and abruptly severs that tendency and points to the immediacy of what's actually at hand. And what is actually at hand is arguably what is truly mysterious. A piece of cake, um, a pile of flax, uh, a tree. That's where the teacher seeks to bring the person's attention. And likewise, I think we see this in, in early Buddhism, uh, particularly in the Pali texts. Um, I think exactly the same thing is being done except in Indian tradition, there's a kind of unwillingness for whatever reason to refer to specific objects in the world like cake or flax or trees, but rather to um, speak in terms of specific uh, subjective experiences. And so the Buddha in these early texts, let's say the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness, when he introduces meditation, he does not start by instructing his monks and his followers to meditate on the nature of mind, or the nature of emptiness, or the nature of something abstract and profound. Instead, and again, this may not surprise us so much anymore because we're used to this text. He says, you, you go into a forest, you sit cross-legged at the foot of a tree, and when you breathe in, you know that you're breathing in. And when you breathe out, you know that you're breathing out. 
Now, in the context of uh, Indian religious and philosophical thought, that is a very shocking thing to say. Uh, it goes completely at, uh, against the stream of uh, metaphysical thought that is so characteristic of Indian uh, religion and philosophy. The Brahmins talk of God, of Brahman, of the true self, and this is what one seeks in meditation to become uh, aware of, to become uh, attuned to. And here we have this teacher coming along and saying, no, just sit at the foot of a tree, and when you breathe in, you know you're breathing in, and when you breathe out, you know that you're breathing out. And then when that gets further expanded, he then talks of all the different bits of the body. The hair on the head, the brain, the eyes, the skin, the flesh, the mucus, the lymph, the urine, the feces, etc., etc., etc. And sometimes that's presented as a way to sort of you know, discourage monks and nuns from being sexually attracted to members of the opposite sex. But I think that's missing the point totally. It's not. It's about, again, coming back to the, to the, the sheer facticity of our physical existence in its most basic and, in a sense, most irreducible forms. Our intestines, our feces our skin, our sweat, our blood. That's where we focus our attention. And only from that there do we go into feelings, but again, feelings that are triggered by our encounters with the physical world. Perceptions, the way we make sense of that. Impulses, and so on. Until we arrive at what the Buddha simply calls sabadhamma, all things. And all things are as we've seen. What we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, feel. And there's a profound um, counterintuitive tendency here to uh, turn the attention away from these grandiose mystical truths back to the uh, brute simplicity of where we are in our bodies, in this moment, right now. And I feel that what the Son tradition does, um, particularly the early Son tradition, before it too got caught up in ideas about the big mind and all this kind of stuff, is that it was also a recovery of the... Um, of the, of the primary experience that we're encountering in, in this very moment right now, all of us. The stuff that feels somehow dull, inert, maybe a bit boring, overly familiar. But that's where we begin, and I would argue that that is where we end. Except we end in a way in which we discover how what we look upon as ordinary is in fact utterly extraordinary. There's nothing I can think of that is stranger than just being here now.
nothing more mysterious, nothing more um, transcendent in a way. The problem is that we have got stuck into a habit of thinking that is both culturally determined, biologically driven probably, um, and also reinforced by a lot of our religious thought as well, that somehow denigrates this ordinary life um, as somehow inferior, somehow inadequate, somehow, um, uh, somehow just a pale shadow of reality. This goes back all the way to Plato, of course, uh, and Plato's um, parable of the cave, where people find themselves in this dark cavern and there is a just a little fire burning in the cave and that throws shadows onto the walls and people think that that's the nature of reality. But no, someone says, you can find your way out of this cave and there you arrive at some other realm altogether with sunlight uh, of which the cave is merely a, um, a sort of a very, very poor sort of copy and this kind of idealism, I think, has really um, uh, characterized so much of our, our Western uh, tradition and philosophy. Um, that there's some more true world somewhere else, but not here. We could interpret Plato's cave in a, another way. Um, in other words, well, I'm not going to get into that. I, I think the playing Plato's cave is, in a way, reinforcing that same habit. But, of course, we don't live in Plato's cave. We live in this world. And this world is one that I do think has somehow become diminished, not because it is, in its nature, somehow inadequate or inferior or, or a pale copy of reality, a la Plato but rather because our habits of mind have rendered it such. If we could learn to just pay attention to the ordinary things, our breath, our footsteps, the trees around us, the sounds of the rooks, if we could attend to this mundane world um, in a different way, in a way in which we attend to it with a greater stillness and quietness of mind, not a mind that's constantly sort of trying to figure out what's going on through the, the veil of mental chatter and habit. If we could quieten that chatter, and at the same time, if we could open our hearts and our minds to just notice, just notice what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch, how we feel. And this, of course, is the practice of mindfulness. What the Son tradition, in a sense, injects into mindfulness is the quality of curiosity. It's a term you don't really find so much in the early tradition. You have this idea of Dhamma Vichaya, which is usually translated as analysis of things. 
Um, but again, that, that very term carries with it something rather cerebral and intellectual, analysis, examination. But I think what the, the Son uh, people somehow recovered was not just an extensive sense of examining or analyzing things and learning to see how things are impermanent and dukkha and not self, which is, of course, very valuable. But they also began to, to, um, to valorize, to give tremendous importance to that sort of innate curiosity or puzzlement that sense of how odd things are. And they called this, uh, in Korean, it's called eishim, which is usually translated as doubt, but that doesn't quite get it. It's something more like perplexity, puzzlement. We might even say bewilderment, even confusion. And there's this very famous uh, uh, little text that our teacher Kuzan uh, Sunim used to repeat all the time which was if there is great perplexity there will be great awakening if there's little perplexity there will be little awakening and if there is no perplexity there will be no awakening in other words the degree to which your practice um, resonates at a certain pitch of perplexity or puzzlement or confusion or doubt, that is what, um, that is the resonance or the pitch at which your insight or your understanding can resonate. So if you just come to your practice with a kind of intellectual curiosity, then, as a correlate, your insight will likewise be intellectual in nature. But if you come to a practice with a kind of existential perplexity, a deep, um, urgent uh, confusion and puzzlement about what it means to have been born, to get sick, to get old, to die, if that's the constant, if that's the pitch at which your practice resonates, then you are opening yourself to an insight or an understanding or an awareness, um, maybe even a resolution of that uncertainty, but one that will operate at a similar level of um, intensity. And again, it may not therefore express itself in terms of doctrine or in terms of some beautifully articulated uh, theory or philosophy. It's just as likely to express itself in, um, in a verse of poetry or in some of these uh, Chan texts, it expresses itself as a shout, um, uh, a yell, uh, in other words, a, an inarticulate, um, you know, they have huck, 
Uh, I'm not going to pretend to do this. I think it's all a bit zenny. But the point, or, or a raising of the fist. But the trouble with all those things is they quickly become cliched and predictable uh, and expected. It's so easy to just kind of mimic that kind of language. What I actually find to be the most compelling and enduring expressions of this kind of insight is through uh, some of the visual arts, um, both in China, Korea, Japan. But I think my favorites are those we find in, in Japan. Um, some of you might be aware of the work of the painter Sengai. Uh, what he would do, would he would just paint like a broom or frog or three persimmons sitting on a shelf with very rapid uh, brush strokes, just done in a moment, of utterly ordinary things. But what Senge and others achieve is um, works of art that are, for me, profoundly transcendent because, yes, they are of persimmons or brooms or frogs, but they're done in such a way that they are far more than persimmons, brooms, and frogs. How exactly we can pin down uh, and describe what that more is, is very difficult. It's only something I feel we can appreciate um, aesthetically. We kind of know it uh, in our bones. We are moved by it. It's not just a photograph of a broom. There's something about that brush painting that speaks to us at a deep, visceral level. And it engages our attention. It brings our mind almost to a sort of stop. And the same is true of so much great art. In all traditions, they have that effect. But what I like about the, uh, the arts that come out of Zen or Chan or Son is that they articulate, I think, the, the insight, the awakening, the understanding that has been prompted not by some deep insight into the nature of ultimate truth, whatever that might be, but into having come into a new relationship with the ordinary objects of our daily life. So I very much hope on this retreat we can, um, we can practice and learn from some of these examples. And so when we're eating our rice and veggies at lunch or when we are uh, washing our bowl after having had a cup of tea, or when we're engaging in our work uh, in the retreat, in the garden or the kitchen, or cleaning the toilets, whatever it might be, to really and sincerely uh, take those um, exercises of um, everyday life 
to incorporate them very much into the practice you're doing here. These give us a concrete opportunity to deal with the banal objects of every day. And yet, with the kind of attention that we're seeking to cultivate here, we are given the opportunity to experience them in a completely different light, to experience ourselves, our breath, the sensations in the body, the pain in the knees, the, the feeling of the wind or the rain on our cheeks. All of this is uh, utterly uh, pertinent to this question that we are suggesting that you ask. You know, what is this? And the this is referring to that which is so close to you in your sight, your sound, your smells, your taste, your touches, uh, that you tend to completely overlook it. So I'll stop here. Um, what's the time? Uh, we're going to have a walking period before the next sitting, but before then, if anyone has a comment or a question, I can, we can spend a few minutes doing that. Yeah. I listened to a talk which I think was from your last year's retreat. Oh dear, and I said something different. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do want you to sit them alongside each other. Okay. Mm -hmm. as being something that I've always thought of as big stuff to us. Oh, right, yeah. No, it's just simply being, being with stuff that isn't individual ego basis, mm -hmm. it's arising mm -hmm. that's happening, as I understood it. Mm -hmm. And to me, when I've experienced that, it has felt very different from everyday, slightly dull reality. But it's, you're saying that, in a sense, today you've been saying that it's not something different. All we're doing is wanting to be slightly less dull about reality. Can you sit those two alongside each other, possibly? Yeah, no, very much so. The, the, I'm going to repeat this for the, um, the people who listen to the podcasts. Um, hi, people who listen to podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to include everybody, you see. Um, yeah, the stream entry, again, you see, the way it's been pitched in, um, it's generally pitched in the Vipassana world. It's, it's, a, it's the first stage of enlightenment. It's something that very few people would ever, you know, have the nerve to really say that they might have experienced it themselves. It's a, a rather uh, uh, elevated state of insight and, uh, and so on. Um, but again, when you go back to the early texts, it's actually presented as something, I'm not going to say easy, but something that is just uh, an integral part of ordinary life. But it's, um, it's again, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's coming to see the world um, in which you're not, as it were, uh, restricted or somehow inhibited by your your, your self-interest, making everything into me and mine, 
a kind of selfishness, a kind of wish to dominate and control things, uh, to be in charge. Uh, so it's a letting go of a certain kind of obsessive, uh, trying to order and, and hold on to things as they, you think they should be for your benefit. It's also a letting go of a certain kind of uh, moral correctness. Uh, it's letting go of a certain kind of vacillation. You know, should I do this? Should I do that? And, but that's, of course, framing it only negatively. When you look at how the early texts frame these experiences positively, they compare it to entering a stream. And the stream is the path itself, the Eightfold Path. And again, I think the, the potency in a lot of these early Buddhist teachings lies in the use of metaphor. In other words, it's talking of an experience in which you feel you, your life is flowing like water, um, which is in contrast to how so often we feel that our lives uh, are somehow stuck. We don't really feel as though we're getting anywhere or going anywhere. We feel as though we're going round in circles. But this experience of flow is not, I think, some highly realized experience that only the, the great and the good can have. But actually, I think we all have such moments in our lives all the time. When we're maybe making art or when we're uh, enjoying you know, cycling or jogging or whatever, we find experiences in which we have this very palpable sense that our energies are really flowing in a way that makes our world and ourselves feel fully alive. And that's, I think, likewise what comes through in a lot of these early Zen uh, stories. It's, it's people wake up to becoming fully alive, but that fully alive may only be momentary on the one hand, but that fully alive is also always and unavoidably in the world of specific ordinary things. Except specific ordinary things are now no longer th experienced as rather dull and uninteresting and, oh gosh, couldn't we go somewhere more fun? But actually, we discover that actually that is what can be the most revealing and fulfilling and awe-inspiring, is just to be able to be with this, to look at a cypress tree or a handful of flax or a piece of cake, and yet in a way that there's something almost miraculous about such things. And so it's, I think it's in these ways that we can we can perhaps find a convergence between the admittedly rather more abstract language of early Buddhism and the rather more poetic um, and uh, immediate language we find in, in song. Yeah, at the back.
great awakening. Yeah. What might those be? Are they different from the sense of <coughs> Okay, if I understand that correctly, it really has to do with, with transcendence. And I, um, I'm not suggesting that there's no role here for transcendence. I think transcendence is is very, very central to this, without which this practice or any practice wouldn't make much sense. So when I say that we need to somehow learn to live fully in the ordinariness of our life, that is already a transcendence. It's a transcendence of a certain way of being in the world, a transcendence of of an experience that's limited by our our selfishness, our attachments, our fears. The problem is that we, I think we tend to confuse um, transcendence um, with somehow accessing some reality that transcends this ordinary one, some ultimate truth or some, um, some god or whatever. So we think of this world as somehow inadequate, and yet there is some other reality that we can break through to in a mystical experience that will give us access to something else. And we think of transcendence or the transcendent as, 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 as represented by that something else. Whereas here, I think, the transcendence has got nothing to do with that at all. It's not nothing to do with accessing some other dimension of experience. Uh, It has to do with transcending certain uh, functions and habits and patterns of thinking and perceiving and feeling uh, that keep us stuck and that thereby also dull and render uninteresting the life of uh, the world. And so, yeah, so, so small perplexity little perplex no, so no perplexity little perplexity great perplexity yeah these are gradations of transcendence if you wish uh, you might start by going beyond a life in which you don't think of these things at all to a life where you start becoming let's say philosophically interested in certain questions to a life where that is transcended by a practice in which you are viscerally perplexed. So you are moving from one frame to another to another, and each step is one in which you transcend the previous one. So yeah, transcendence is crucial, but what that transcendence is transcending is not ordinary experience, but it's transcending a particular uh, unsatisfying and uh, narrowing of attention uh, that keeps us trapped and locked into a particular way of experiencing ourselves and others in the world. Yeah. idea of something more, something more mystical, 
um, especially if they're going to commit themselves to meditating. <laughs> well, um, I mean that would be that is, is an entirely reasonable um, suggestion, <laughs> and it's true. People, I think, are often drawn to um, a spiritual or religious or philosophical practice precisely because they think there is this is going to lead me into something far better, and. I suppose, in many ways, I can see that in myself, uh, in my own trajectory through these things over the years. Um, you know, I probably, like many people, started out with rather, rather grandiose and idealistic ideas of enlightenment that I was taught by Buddhist teachers. Um, and that was immensely inspiring, and possibly without that I wouldn't have been motivated to sort of keep going. But at a certain point, I think, however useful that sort of inspiration might have been, um, at some point, I think, by dint of the very practice of paying attention itself, is that you start to realize that, well, wait a minute, this ordinary experience is actually kind of interesting. Because even if you have a you know, some idea about, you know, astral traveling or whatever it is. In the end, simply by adopting a, uh, an exercise, a, a commitment to a certain discipline of attention or consciousness, that will begin to have an effect, not in terms of your necessarily realizing that goal, but you will start to become more still in yourself, you'll start to become more present, more alert, more aware. And that might then, as certainly in my case, turn me uh, in a direction in which um, those mystical ideals became less and less interesting. And ordinary life became more and more compelling to the point where now I have no interest whatsoever in those things. And I feel a tremendous amount of, uh, of fulfillment um, uh, in my work, in my life, uh, through um, engaging continuously with this so-called dull reality. But it's not dull anymore. There are moments when I'm not feeling so great gets to be dull again. But um, on the contrary, I think that it's, it's, it's to be totally engaged with this experience in all of its specificity, in all of its pain, um, in all of its uh, ambiguity, unpredictability, uh, its sort of messiness. This is where life is lived. And uh, to me, the practice is one that, if it doesn't um, lead one to live more fully, then I really have to question what value it has. If the goals of the practice are basically only possible in some post-mortem state, um, I find that a rather odd thing to want to do. So you may be right, 
And I think if you just look at the way in which the religions of the world largely do speak in the language of, you know, it, you know internal paradise, sitting on the left hand of God or whatever it might be, or nirvana that will somehow enter into some ineffable eternity. Um, but possibly that's to get you going. <laughs> but I wonder, really, and I think the Zen tradition is a very good historical case of, um, uh, it's an historical moment in the history of Buddhism uh, that really shows, in a way, how when it becomes too mystical and too abstract a tradition, it kind of necessarily will collapse under its own weight and something new will come up. And I think that's also true on the individual level as well to some degree. We have to stop here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.